couple of announcements before we get started. Just a reminder that this Saturday morning is our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30. So just to encourage you to remember that. We usually have time when um, uh, a lot of the men are reading on some sort of through the Bible in a year Bible reading program. And so they will come and ask questions and we always have a, have a good discussion for about 30 or 45 minutes before we uh, spend some time in prayer, but uh, we have a very good, um, very good breakfast. Also, there's going to be family night this coming Saturday night, and that starts at 6 p.m., so we need to, uh, that's a potluck. There's sign-up sheets out in the fellowship hall as to what should be brought for the uh, family night, and then we'll be watching a movie called uh, Railway Children, which I hear is excellent, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. Reminder to pray for Vacation Bible School, July 22nd to 24th, and Camp Arete, July 14th to 20th. And then we also have tours, and that information is up on the uh, Dean Bible Ministry website. Scripture says that when we come together to worship the Lord, to study His Word, as we live our lives every moment of every day, we are to be living for Him. We are to do all things to glorify Him. And we can only do that when we're walking in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. But when we sin, we're no longer uh, walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to our sin nature, and we are uh, living according to the dictates of the sin nature, willingly putting ourselves back under a bondage, a slavery to our sin nature. The only way to recover is to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins, and instantly we're forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful we can come together to focus upon your word, that we live in a world that is dark. We live in a world where, as we focus on the news, there is the uh, constant promise of some sort of apocalypse or collapse or doomsday and continuous threats, and sometimes they're a little more uh, evident than other times. We now have threat, some overt threats from Iran, and we pray that you would give uh, the president and our leaders' wisdom to see the situation for what it is, to understand it accurately, and to make wise decisions in regard to that, that we might protect our nation, protect our nation's interests overseas, and that we may do it uh, wisely. Father, we pray for us as believers that as we live in the midst of this a sinful, perverse world that we are to shine forth as lights, and we do that by walking in the light. We do that by knowing your word, by developing our relationship with uh, God the Son, who is the light of the world, and we illuminate the truth by our testimony. Father, give us the courage, the spiritual courage, the fortitude, and the wisdom to do that and to be steadfast in our uh, application of your word in our lives. And Father, we pray too for uh, Tom Wright tonight. We pray for his doctors, for their wisdom, for the procedures that they're going to, um, that they're going to use to treat this uh, blockage, and we pray that that would be successful and that you would give him uh, comfort while he's in the hospital and his wife Anne as well. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today I got an update. Um, I'm not going to mention who or how or anything like that because that's not really important. The, what's important is the truth, but just a little update on what's going on in the Middle East, just so you won't sleep tonight. Right now, as you know, if you pay any attention to what goes on in the Middle East, that Israel has two basic enemies. They have Hezbollah on the north, coming out of both Syria and, and uh, Lebanon. And then in the south, 
West, they have Hamas. Hamas is a radical terrorist organization, offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, and they're constantly doing things to disrupt Israel. Uh, everything from uh, firebombing uh, through, through kites and uh, sending missiles. And they've also built a number of tunnels. I think they've discovered some 22 tunnels. Same thing is happening in the north, coming down from uh, Lebanon and Syria, that Hezbollah has, has um, built a number of tunnels. Now, I don't know what you imagine when you think of a tunnel. Maybe you think of the Great Escape and you think of these little uh, tunnels not much larger than a human being and they just sort of scoot around on their belly on some sort of maybe a rail system. Or maybe you think of a mining tunnel, something like this. The person that briefed us this morning had just been there and he walked into a tunnel that was a state-of-the-art tunnel. It was 22 stories. That's about 220 to 230 feet below land level. That's pretty deep. It was enormous. It was fully provided for in terms of all of the latest technology, Wi-Fi, Internet, uh, big screen TVs, everything that you can imagine. You can drive enormous trucks through there. All kinds of things. You can put uh, several thousand armed troops into these tunnels. And these are dug under the border to come up into villages and kibbutzim in Israel. And this is the same kind of thing that you have that's going on down with, with Hamas. And so this is an ever-present problem. And Israel, of course, always has to be one step ahead of the enemy in terms of their own technology. They're using everything at their disposal from listening devices to seismic, very sensitive seismic equipment to uh, get the vibrations from down below as to when any kind of activity is taking place. But that is a, a constant threat. And, of course, if you're thinking... In terms of the north, you're thinking in terms of Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is just a front organization for Iran, and Iran is pouring millions and millions of dollars into uh, into Hezbollah, and and they're sp and they're spending millions of dollars uh, constructing these tunnels, five ten million dollars per tunnel. Okay, now I hope that just blows your mind as to what is actually going on over there because our pathetic news media uh, never gives us any kind of information uh, quite like this. So the other thing that's going on here, talking about Hezbollah and Iran, is that Iran is, has, is and has for the last decade at least been constantly working through uh, various uh, terrorist organizations and tools and people to completely destabilize the region. And they have, uh, and they're increasing that. They are sending uh, missiles now, moving missiles into Yemen, not just short-range missiles that they've been using. In fact, last week there was an, at uh, an attack from Yemen, a missile attack on a Saudi airport, you all read about that in the news, right? And dozens and dozens of civilians were killed in that attack. So we all get that from NBC, don't we? Anyway, that, that went on just last week. Well, not only are the uh, Iranians moving these short-range missiles into places like Yemen and into western Iraq uh, so that they can fire at Israel, but they're, sh they're moving long-range missiles in. The recent uh, attacks that occurred three or four weeks ago where Hamas was firing a large number of missiles into uh, uh, the Negev, into Israel, was funded by Iran. And its purpose is to test the capacity of Iron Dome, the short-range defense missile system that Israel has. By the way, uh, the U.S. is now purchasing that from Israel, there's always some Americans and some conservatives who complain ignorantly about the fact that we give money to Israel. They don't want us to give money to anybody, and so they don't want us to give money to Israel. But in all of the money that we have used 
and, and uh, given to Israel for the de uh, development of Iron Dome, so much, it's an investment. So much of that comes back to the U.S. I think it's 70 or 75% of what is, we give Israel must be spent in the U.S. So it comes back to us. When uh, we develop aircraft like the F-35, before that the F-16, Israel gets it and tears it apart, puts it back together, rebuilds all the computer stuff, and we get the benefit of their, they field test everything for us. They're our, uh, sort of the R&D for our military equipment over there on, on the front line. So we get uh, a huge return on that, that um, investment. Well, what Iran wanted to do was test the capacities of Iron Dome to see if they were firing 70, 80, 100 missiles at one time, if that would overwhelm the capacities of Iron Dome, which it did in a couple of occasions. Of course, the Israelis are trying to get out, out ahead of this. But Iran is, is really thumping the war drums right now. And we've seen that by the attacks on a couple of tankers in the Persian Gulf and some other things, and they're really ramping it up against Israel. And so you need to be in prayer for that. Now, if you're thinking about going to Israel next year, you remember, somebody told me the other day that they listened to a pastor who says that we need to learn to trust the Lord. wonder who that was. We need to trust the Lord. I'm, I can't tell you how many people over the last... Uh, 10 or what, 15 years I've been leading trips who say, well, a war is going to break out. Right. It may or may not, but are you trusting the Lord or not? Do you understand that God has determined the time, the manner, and the place of your death, and it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing, God's going to override that and you're going to die. So if, you're, if God's plan for you is to die on a certain date, then, and if you're in Israel, great, but if you say, oh, no, I'm not going to go to Israel, then you'll be a traffic statistic in the city of Houston or somewhere else. So you have to learn to just trust God and not give in to uh, fears. Never take counsel of your fears. So this is um, uh, a dangerous time. It's a dangerous time in the world, but it's always a dangerous time uh, in the world. And one other comment that was made was lengthy discussion on the tremendous business climate in Israel and how uh, the tech developments that have been going on there for the last 10, 15, 20 years are just going into overdrive. And one example was given of three companies that were sold this last year for uh, several billion dollars. And it doesn't even get reported in the news anymore over there because this has become so commonplace. So, you know, all of our many high-tech companies, not just in the U.S., but in India, China, many other places are purchasing things from Israel, developing business relationships with Israel in order to get into the cutting edge of the uh, technology business, uh, security business and technology, all of these different things. So it's just a sign of how Israel is blessing the world in fulfillment of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. So those are just some insights as to what is going on over there and some ways you can pray for our nation and the security of our nation, the security of Israel and wisdom of of leaders because there's there's a lot shaping up and how that exactly is going to shape up in terms of end-time prophecy. You'll find a lot of people making prognostications, but we're all ignorant. We don't know when the end times are going to come. We don't know when the rapture is going to come. We don't know how things are going to look when the rapture comes. And anybody who thinks they do is needs to spend a lot more time in the Word of God. Speaking of the Word of God, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, and we have been studying in reference to our look at the Davidic covenant, we have been studying these three, three in addition to a couple of others, but basically these three 
what is sometimes referred to collectively as sea creatures or sea monsters, Leviathan, the Tanin, sometimes translated serpent, sometimes translated in other ways, and Rahav, a term that is often misunderstood because Rahav is translated or transliterated as it is in Psalm 89.10. For those of you who've forgotten, that's our passage that we're studying. But we got into this mention of Rahav here and decided, well, we need to find out exactly what this means. And that opened up the door to some further investigations on these sea monsters. And what we're going to learn from that is that this actually is an allusion ultimately to the angelic conflict and to Satan, that the name Rahab here isn't Rahab, the proper name. That's the second listing here in the in the box below. It's spelled differently. It's a chet and a kametz as opposed to a he and a patach. And so here we have uh, uh, the name here, Rahab, as opposed to Rahab. And so I've tried to spell it this way, the bait at the end, the B sound is a soft B. If it had a dot in the middle, it would be a hard B, so it's transliterated as a V. And so we have a a reference to God having broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. Now, what does that mean? So that's why we're investigating all of these different things. And the term for Rahab occurs in several places, and we're going to investigate some of these in Job and others uh, tonight. But the basic meaning of the noun, if it has the article in front of it, is the arrogant one. So we know that in Scripture, the most arrogant of all of God's creatures is Satan, that Satan is the arrogant one, and he is the one leading an angelic rebellion and now... Uh, has co-opted humanity into that struggle against God. So last time we just looked at some quick things. I'm going to and we'll just summarize these. First of all, that God created all living things, including Rahab, Leviathan, Behemoth, the sea, and the Tanin, that when we read these references, we need to understand that they're talking about creatures God God created. They are not mythical. They're not mythological. They are terms related to uh, creatures from God's original creation. But, and, and second, that God in his omniscience designed all these things. And he's in his omniscience, he knew that they would be co-opted as into images expressing pagan mythology. But he also knew that he was designing them a certain way so that he could use them as visual aids in teaching certain things. They would also be representative of of some things. So he understood how they would be used as symbols, both in terms of history, actual history, and in terms of the mythological representations. And so I talked about the fact that he knew that they would be used as metaphors for describing Satan and the demons, And I talked about the fact that as God designed all of these creatures, he used various forms that long before he ever created the animals in Genesis chapter 1, and yet they had these forms and functions. And I talked about the seraphim who had wings, and yet no birds had been created yet. So God has these forms long before he creates the creatures we're familiar with. In Ezekiel, it's talking about the cherubim and their description that they have wings, they have uh, legs like calves' feet. No calves have been created yet in Genesis 1. Uh, they have hand, something like the hands of man under these wings on the four sides. They have the face of a man, a face of a lion, face of an ox, and face of an eagle. But men and oxen and eagles and lions haven't been created yet. So it's God is aware of all these things, how they're used, and they're part of his creation in the angelic realm long before you have the human creation. You have the same references to the living beings in Revelation 4. They're, they look like a calf, a man, an eagle. And 
at wings. So all of these morphological features are there. We also know that the angels appear like flames of fire. They seem to be able to morph themselves into different things so that this helps explain why the sons of God mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, which is debated by some, but that phrase, Beneha Elohim, in the Hebrew always refers to God's angelic creation, both to fallen angels as well as to uh, elect angels. They're, the, they're all the sons of God because God directly created all of them, but some of them rebelled against God and followed uh, followed Satan, and so that's What's, we see them manifested in Genesis 6-3, some of those who left their first estate, as uh, Jude puts it, and committed sexual sin like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that identifies just exactly what's going into the, And when we're in Second Peter on Thursday night, we'll get there in chapter 3, goes through the same basic material. And in the Old Testament, you have the use of certain phrases, terms, creatures, that have a dominant role in pagan mythology. You have the Yom, which is the salt sea. You have the Tanin, usually translated sea monster, sometimes translated dragons. Uh, there's other terms for the Tanin. You have the term Leviathan and Rahav, which we've talked about already, and then another creature uh, behemoth. Now, we're not going to talk about all of these. These are the primary ones. There's a couple of other minor ones, but this is uh, strong enough for us. And as we ended last time, I had this chart to give you an idea into th- how to think about these things in terms of God's global plan in, that's in his mind, in his omniscience, that when he created the angels, long before he created the earth and all that is in them in those six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, God created the angels and they had shapes and forms and functions and they could do different things and some of their forms were used again when God created the creatures of our present world. But he created all of these creatures. He created the salt sea, the yam. He created Leviathan. We'll see that in what we're studying this evening. He created Behemoth. We're not exactly sure what Behemoth is. Behemoth is only mentioned in uh, in Job, but we're not going to get into those passages. Uh, the Tanin, the sea creatures or the sea serpents, Rahab, all of those were designed to look a certain way. They're designed for a purpose. Part of that purpose is how they would be used later, both in terms of biblical imagery and in pagan uh, mythological imagery. And so when the Bible refers to them, so we go on this left side of the slide, uh, in terms of bi- actual uh, biblical historical creation, God created them as actual historical creatures. So when they're referred to initially in Scripture, they're referred to as actual actual creatures. and But God also created them with a view to how man would use them in his uh, suppression of truth and unrighteousness, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, worshiping the animals, and how they would assign various mythological connotations uh, to them in order to explain the origin of all things. So in the right column, you have these mythological origin stories, these, these stories about how the earth came into being. And usually they start off with some sort of a sexual liaison between a couple of the gods, but they're already in existence. And then maybe one dies, their bodies are used and cut up to make the universe and those bodies have some sort of mass and matter. They're already in existence. So it's, it's not unlike modern evolutionary myths that uh, see the e- eternality of matter and God just comes on the scene and makes something from that matter or other gods come on the scene and make something for that ma- from that matter. In the development of these mythological deities... They're, the significance of these creatures made by God are sort of uh, retooled, and they now represent a pagan deity so that the sea becomes a, 
a deity, that this creature, the Leviathan, becomes a, a deity. The sea monsters become associated with deities. All of these things now become part and parcel of the uh, mythology. And so they enter into the culture in, in, in such a way that, that people refer to them in terms of this, this sort of cultural baggage. And last time, I, as I was ending, I said that we have a lot of instances of that even in our literature where you have people, uh, writers, Christian writers, who don't believe Greek or Roman mythology, but they will use those, uh, those Roman deities or Greek deities in order to uh, communicate something because that has entered into the sort of cultural idiom where those deities represent certain things. So you have, uh, for example, in Shakespeare talks about something as bright as Apollo's lute strung with his hair. That doesn't mean that uh, Shakespeare believed that Apollo was real or that he had an actual lute, but that the myth- mythology is so well known within English culture that it has a an idiomatic meaning without attributing to it any sort of historical uh, historical veracity. Uh, also, you have people like um, like uh, Milton calling upon sweet echo, sweetest nymph that livest unseen within the airy shell. Well, he doesn't believe in the existence of these mythological creatures of the nymphs, but he's using that as a literary uh, metaphor to talk about his uh, what what he is describing. And so there are innumerable examples of this kind of thing taking place, and that's important to understand. I'll point out a couple of places in Job where I think that's what Job is doing. He is using one of these... Uh, mythological, uh, one of these mythological creatures, he's not affirming the mythology, he's not borrowing from the mythology, it's so well known by his readers that they understand the metaphorical significance of that illusion. But what we have today, and I have to constantly uh, tell you this and warn you about this, is the uh, insertion into evangelical scholarship of a lot of men in the language departments, especially in the Old Testament, who take a very different view. And they're supposed to be conservative, uh, conservative theologians, conservative scholars, and yet they they're they're taking positions to indicate that, well, this isn't really. You know, Moses got a lot of his ideas from the Egyptians and the uh, and the Babylonians, and it's and they're in in a way at, at the best case they are minimizing the significance of God's original creation. In a worst case scenario, they're basically saying God. Uh, you know, the writers weren't really inspired by God; they're just borrowing ideas that were popular in the culture at that time. And this has led to to a lot of problems. It led to the collapse of Princeton Seminary in the back in the nineteen twenties. And the as Princeton went liberal, it started in their Old Testament department. Someone has quipped that when the devil fell, he fell into the choir loft, but he bounced into the Old Testament department. And a lot has come out of that, and a lot of liberalism. And you can see in a lot of the strong evangelical schools from 40, 50, 60 years ago that they have had problems uh, in their Old Testament departments. And often this is not dealt with adequately. So with all of that by way of introduction, let's get into Job. And as we get into Job, what we need to do is get a little framework for understanding what is going on in Job. We have to always understand uh, understand the context. So let's turn to Job chapter 1. Job is, I believe, and many, many scholars believe, that Job was the first book written in the Old Testament. Even if it was not written until a little later, the story was well known, and the 
historical events, the person of Job lived early. He lived about the same time as the patriarchs, probably about the same time as Isaac uh, or Jacob in that time frame because there is a man named Ur in the genealogies that's about that same time, and Job lived in the land of Ur. So that is, I mean, uh, us, excuse me, us. And so that is uh, the uh, time frame there. And it's no mention of Jerusalem, no mention of Israel, no mention of Abraham, no mention of Moses, no mention of the Torah, no mention of, of anything related to the Hebrew aspects of the Old Testament. So Job was more than likely a Gentile believer in the land of us. And it's set in the context of God's questioning of Satan. We read at the very beginning, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. That is a full statement there. And the idea that he is blameless and upright is very important because three times, that's the first of three times that uh, God assesses Job as a man who is blameless and upright. It's also repeated in in one eight, and it is repeated again in two three, along with the phrase "blameless and upright." It's one who fears God and shuns evil. This is a high recommendation from God that he is a man who is experientially righteous. He's spiritually mature. And he is not engaged in idolatry or other overt sins, not that he is sinless or perfect. That's not the sense there. The first word of blameless indicates that this is a man who's just, he's honest, he is uh, um, peaceful, he's healthy, he's complete. Those are the ideas in that word Tom that is translated as blameless. That's the idea. You can't assign blame to this guy. He's certainly not blameworthy, and his behavior is not brought about what happens to him. That's, that's the point in these three statements. The second word that is used, he's blameless and he's upright. This is a Hebrew word that indicates uh, something close to righteousness, that he is upright, uh, he stands firm, and that God has... Um, has approved of him. And so I'm looking at my notes here, and suddenly I'm noticing that there's like five pages missing, so I guess I'll just make it up as we go along. Um, so that he, the word here is Yashar, and it means that he's a moral man. He's a man of integrity. He's a man who is, um, that you can count on, you can trust. He's, he's worthy of respect. Uh, the word yashar is often used of a man who is uh, a leader and is uh, following God. David's life is mentioned uh, and described by this verb as well. We know David sinned. So it's not a word that means sinlessness. It is a description of a man who basically has integrity. That may challenge some of our notions today because we, also, we have such a problem with sin. And leftists have such a problem with, with they're so self-righteous. I mean, they're the modern-day Pharisees. It's just aggravating to see them accuse everybody else of things that they're doing in spades. But that's typical of the arrogance of the sin nature. And when you don't have a doctrine of sin, then you have a real problem explaining or dealing with sin. And that's where we are as a culture. And it's, it's self-destructive because at the same time that you can't deal with sin... It leads to further sin and arrogance and just a t t total inward, inward collapse. A man of integrity is not a man who doesn't sin. A man of integrity is a man who understands that he is sinning and he's not operating on arrogance and he's not operating uh, in idolatry against God. And when he sins, he deals with it before God. He's not in licentiousness and justifying his sin, sinfulness. He's not using, it, uh, using grace as an excuse to sin. But we all know that we all sin. And so we have to deal with that with everybody from a framework of, of grace. And so that's what God is saying. Here's a man who is 
trying to do everything right. He's walking with the Lord. He takes care of his children. God has blessed him greatly, and he loves the Lord and glorifies him. And this is the setup, and this is what causes the problem uh, that develops for for Job's life. We read down in verse 6 that a day came when the sons, sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So here we have another use of that term. This means all of the angelic host are present before God. Fallen angels and elect angels, they're all before God, and there's this convocation, and Satan came with them. And so the Lord then is engaged in this conversation. So this is a formal assembly before God. Satan is the accuser. That's the meaning of the term Satan in Hebrew. He is the accuser, the adversary. And so the Lord asks him, say, well, where, from where do you come? And Satan says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Sounds a lot like 1 Peter 5, 8, where we're told Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is still doing that. He is still engaged on this. Satan goes around the earth evaluating his battle plans, his campaigns against mankind, and to use mankind against God, and he is involved. But remember, Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. And so Satan has to use all of his forces. I think in a lot of places when we read, not here, but in other places when we see S- Satan mentioned, possibly in 1 Peter 5, 8, Satan goes about like a roaring lion that's not exclusive of his demons. That's his intelligence core. They are out there giving intelligence reports back to Satan. And so it's not just a reference to him personally, but everything that he is engaged in. So that he has, he's the head of this angelic rebellion, but he is also dependent upon all of the demons to give him information about what is going on. And so... God then asks the question, have you considered my servant Job? The Hebrew there is an idiom, and it, it, it's based on the word, the Hebrew word lev, which is the word for heart. And the heart is seen primarily as the seat of thinking and reasoning in, in the Scripture. And so basically the idiom means, have you thought about this? Have you examined this intellectually, mentally? And so it comes to mean the idea of have you looked at, examined, and thought about my servant Job? And right there when he calls Job his servant, this is a high compliment because God looks at certain people in distinct roles in terms of their service to him. We have my servant Moses, my servant David, We have, of course, the Messiah is called the servant of God. There's a few others who are key people in history who are referred to as God's servant, but it is a a title that indicates someone who usually, in this context, someone who is very, very mature spiritually. He says, have you looked at, examined my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. This guy's the most spiritual guy on the planet. God is saying, he's blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom, so that indicates he's a very wise person, and he shuns evil. He doesn't make bad decisions. He doesn't give in to his sin nature all the time. And so, again, there's that great compliment. And Satan replies and says, the only reason, when he says, does does Job fear God for nothing? He says, the only reason Job fears you is because you give him everything. He's the richest man on earth. He's got a great family. He's got all these kids. He's got a wonderful wife. He's got a house. All these things are his. He's got all these cattle. He's wealthy. He's the wealthiest guy on the, on the planet. That's the reason Job worships you. So, in, And then he expands on that, and he says, you put this protection around him. Of course he, he's going to worship you. And so the idea there is Satan is, is accusing Job of just pandering to God because he gets a lot out of it. And that is, that's his approach. And so he wants to, he says, I can't attack him because you put this hedge around him. And so God says, okay, 
I'll give you give you a shot. So this is God's permissive will. He's not morally responsible for what Satan is going to do because there's a reason and a uh, there's a reason and a purpose for this and God gives him limited access to uh, to take things away from Job. And so we learn certain things about this. We learn that Satan is going about the planet. He's watching us. He's often, if he's not the immediate source of suffering, he is the ultimate source of suffering on the planet because of uh, his attempts to uh, get people away from the Lord and to create chaos. And this is a major result of sin. It's always chaos and destruction. Another thing we've learned about this is Satan can't do anything to anyone without God's permission. God is still sovereign, and God is God's foreknowledge, God's omniscience, understand exactly what what can happen, will happen, and God only gives permission in order to test uh, believers. And we're tested in order to demonstrate God's grace and various other factors. So... God gives permission for a higher end, that is to provide evidence that he, his grace is sufficient to provide evidence that God can sustain us in times of difficulty and to provide evidence that Satan's way is a way of chaos and collapse. We also see that, um, that Satan blames God for Job's obedience. Satan blames God for our obedience by application. And Satan wants to attack us in the same way that he tested Job. And the last thing I want to observe is that the passage sets up a much-missed point. This, the opening narrative, the rest of the book is poetry, but the first part is narrative, sets up a trial-type scenario where God is pointing to Job as someone who's going to provide evidence through his life, how he responds to the testing, that is going to teach something about God's character, about the way God sustains people, and the importance of trusting in God even when we don't understand uh, what is going on. This legal context, this trial context has been observed by a lot of people. In the 19th century, one uh, English Hebrew scholar by the name of A.B. Davidson, uh, towards the end of his life, he became influenced by liberal theology, but he was a great Hebrew scholar. He wrote an an advanced grammar on Hebrew, which was a textbook that uh, I used when I was taking uh, second and third year Hebrew when I was in seminary. Uh, he uh, understood this framework in the mid 20th century. A Presbyterian, dispensational Presbyterian pastor, a uh, very well known radio pastor by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, was also understood this in this framework of a legal trial, an illegal examination, as did Pastor Theme, who Uh, many of us are familiar with. So this isn't an idea that was unique to him. It's one that is out there in the literature, but very few people recognize it or exploit it or develop it to be a framework for understanding a lot of of, uh, human history. But there have been those who understand that. So as we look at this passage, we come to the second episode, which is in Job 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. There's a very formal aspect to this terminology of presenting themselves before the Lord, and it shows that Satan, is the accuser, is still under the authority of the sovereignty of God. And again, the Lord asked him where he's been. He says, I've been going around the earth looking for someone to devour. And we see the second test. Job, Job at the end of the first test, where he uh, loses his possessions, he loses his children, he loses their homes, he loses his livestock. At the end of that, he passes the test. He says, naked I came from my father's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So he passes that first test. The, his, his, all of his children have been killed. The home that they were meeting in for having a family celebration was completely destroyed by some sort of, uh, uh, of windstorm. Uh, the Sabaeans and Chaldeans had raided all of his livestock and stolen that and killed all of his servants. He's lost everything he has except his wife and his health. Everything's gone, and he refuses to curse God. He says, the Lord gave it to me. The Lord took it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In this second test, Satan comes forward and says, well, he still has his health. You won't let me touch him. Let me touch him, and he'll curse you. So God gives his permission, and Satan strikes Job with this horrible disease and skin disease, and he's just absolutely miserable just scraping at his sin with uh, broken potsherds to uh, the itching is just horrendous, and, and he's just physically miserable, but he does not uh, curse God. In fact, his wife, who's now fed up with him, uh, down in verse 9 says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Are you still going to trust God? And then she says, curse God and die. And Job rebukes her, and he says, You speak as a foolish woman speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now what happens after this is Job is sitting outside the city gate. That's where business would take place, and he is sitting there, and his three friends, with friends like this, we don't need enemies, each one presents a different fake view of why they're suffering in the world, and ultimately it's his own. It's Job's fault. If he were really upright, then none of this would have happened to him. And they sit there for a week, and no one spoke a word, and his grief was very great. And then we come to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Job starts off in verse 1, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now, what's interesting here is some of the words that are used for cursing. He uses the word kalal, which is used in, um, in, in Genesis 12, 2, about those who curse Israel, God will curse. And those who curse Israel, the word there is kalal, and it means to treat lightly, to treat with disrespect. And so that's what Job is saying. He opened his mouth, and he's, he's treating his, my birthday should be forgotten. That's what he's saying. It's worthless. It's meaningless. We should just forget what, what it means, and it has no, uh, no value. And so we need to just forget it. And, and then he goes on in, the, uh, in verses 2 through 9, uh, explaining why it should be cursed and treated lightly. And he talks about cursing the night that he was conceived and the day should be darkness. And then he comes to verse 8. And he says, May those curse it, that is the day he was born, who curse the day those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. Hmm. Who's Leviathan here? This is the first time Leviathan is mentioned mentioned twice in Job here and in Job uh, 41.1. Job 41.1, we'll look at that, treats Leviathan as an actual historical creature that men cannot control. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. And he says, may those curse it who curse the day. Now, this is a verse that is talking about uh, use, the, the use of that sec, uh, first word curse, kebab, indicates a, a, a harsh curse, but it indicates a curse that often refers to uh, people who are sorcerers or into some kind of magic incantations or good luck charms or bad luck charms or uh, bad omens and things like that. And so uh, they're going to cast a spell on the day. It says, those who are the spell casters, let them treat the day with respect and those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. And by that he means that they're, they're foolishly engaged in things they don't understand, and their arrogance is such that they would go out and wake up this sleeping monster. 
And so he says that that word to arouse means to wake up or to excite someone. And this is the idea that that there's a force out there. Uh, It's talking about Leviathan is a literal historical creature that man cannot control. We'll see that when we get to chapter 41, that man cannot control and that in arrogance they would go out and wake up Leviathan. And I went out and did a little search on images for Leviathan, and most of them relate to Leviathan as some sort of dragon-type creature. And this is just one example of many. And I thought it was interesting that in this portrayal, Leviathan is a creature of the sea, and in the Scripture it is uh, associated with the sea, and the sea refers to... Uh, is the Hebrew word yam. It refers to the salt sea. And in pagan mythology, yam was there in the primordial past when there is this, when the universe is just chaos. And chaos fights against the gods who use it or who wish to bring order and productivity into the world. And so there's this, this conflict that takes place. But there's no hint here that Job is talking about Leviathan as a, as a mythical creature. He is talking about Leviathan as an actual uh, historical, uh, historical creature. Another thing that we should point out, or I want to skip to, is chapter 41. The whole chapter, chapter 41, talks about Leviathan. So let's turn over there and see if point out a few things that we can learn from chapter chapter 41. I think one of the most important things that we can learn is to go to the very last verse of the chapter. Talking about Leviathan, he says, He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. So after 33 verses describing how man is completely incapable of doing anything against this this sea creature. He concludes by saying, talking about his uh, significance in terms of of how he's going to fit within this biblical cosmology, that this literal creature is a representation of the the one who is king over all the children of pride. So the children of pride is just a Hebrew idiom for all those who are proud. And he's the king of the proud ones. So now who is that describe? It doesn't use the word Rahav here, but it uses a different word for pride, but it's still representing the same thing. So here Leviathan is equated to the arrogant one. Now if we go back and we look at this whole chapter, it's kind of interesting how things are translated. I just wanted to bring out a few points in looking at some of the verses. It's a series of rhetorical questions. This is in the last part of Job, that after Job and his three friends have had their debates back and forth as to why Job has suffered so much, then God comes along and God begins to ask Job a series of questions. Job has said, I just wish God would come and contend with me. I want to ask him why he's done all these things and allowed all this to happen in my life. And so the Lord comes along in Job 38.1 and answers Job out of the whirlwind. And what God does is he asks a whole series of questions to show Job's incomplete or, or Job's complete inability to understand and know what is really going on in the universe. He can't comprehend creation. He can't comprehend all that God has done. He can't comprehend God's power. And so there's an example here of how Leviathan is a literal creature that men cannot control. And so the emphasis on this creature that is beyond man's power to create to control, and that this is a man, I mean, excuse me, this is a creature that is going to be characterized by arrogance. So God is taking a literal creature that he created and using this as a picture of arrogance and the fact that man cannot control this king of the arrogant ones. So in the New King James, the first verse is translated, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? or snare his tongue with a line which you lower. 
Can you catch him? Can you go fishing for him? Are you going to be able to control him? Absolutely not. The NIV translates it a little differently. Uh, Can you pull the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? And then the NET translates it, can you pull in Leviathan with a hook and tie down its tongue with a rope? All of these indicate the same thing. There's a little bit of of language difference in how they're they're, uh, handling the Hebrew. But the point is, uh, man is incapable of handling this incredible uh, monster. Then if you skip down to verse uh, 10, after these various uh, uh, rhetorical questions, verse 10 says, no one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. This is stating a hard principle. And he says, no one, what God is making the point that no one can stand up against Leviathan. I can control Leviathan, so who's able to stand up against me? God is stating his control over Leviathan and um, and man cannot. And so verse 41, 11, he makes his point. He says, who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. This is a, a clear statement of God's, God's sovereignty. This is what Job is going to come uh, to recognize in his final response to God in uh, 42, 2. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And then I want to skip down to verse 31. Verse 31 is describing uh, describing Leviathan again. And in verse 31, he says, uh, the King James says, he makes the deep He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He he leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. Uh, That's the foam that comes from the from the waves created by this by this creature. So he treats the creature as a literal historical creature. This is a creature that God created, and he's describing him as a as a creature. He is. Uh, he leaves a shining wake. One would think that the deep had white hair. Now that's interesting because he makes the sea like a pot of ointment. So there's this reference to the sea in parallel with the term the deep in verse 32 to home. So this is where uh, this, the scripture is using uh, the sea as borrowing that imagery from pagan mythology that the sea is something distinct from Leviathan, and he churns it up. Now, where I'm going to go with this is that the sea, the yam, represents the, the, the corporate entity of the demonic forces at, at Satan's disposal. And so he's keeping all of this all, all churned up. And, uh, and the tahom there... Uh, that also relates often to Yom. So there's a there's sort of a, a an imagery borrowed from this cultural knowledge that uh, that this is this is he's he's creating this chaos in the sea. So when we talk about Leviathan, he's seen as a sea creature. In verse twelve, I will uh, he's got incredible power. God, uh, God says, I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. So he has great power. His skin is described as armor. Who can remove his outer coat? In verse 13, who can approach him with a double bridle? No one can approach him. No one can control him. In verses 18 to 21, there's a reference that he... Uh, his sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out. Now, there's debate over this. There's not a lot of information. If you think about the legends related to dragons, dragons breathe fire. The implication is that perhaps this was a capability of this creature, that this is not something that is just made up in mythology, but there were actual creatures God created who had this ability. On a much, much, much smaller scale, there is a beetle called a bombardier beetle. 
And this beetle is capable of, uh, he's got three holes uh, at his rear that are not used for the disposal of waste. And when some creature is trying to bite him, that he excretes a gas that he can ignite. And it, it's like this, this little beetle has a little flamethrower at his rear end, and somebody tries to come up and attack him, he burns him. And ICR had a book out called Bombi the Bombardier Beetle, which was a great little book for children that was all about the bombardier beetle and how it had this ability to, uh, to create fire. There is another book. There's one, a, a recent book that's along the same vein that's been published by Answers in Genesis, and I was on their website several weeks ago and saw it but can't find it again. But I have this one book I read it probably 20 years ago called After the Flood by Bill Cooper. This is still in print. It's published or it's available on the ICR website. I think it's available on Answers in Genesis. And his main thrust seems to be tracing back the history of the Britons, of the British, back all the way to the flood and to the ark. But one of the interesting aspects of this book is he goes through and looks at the chronicles, the ancient, the legends of the ancient Britons and the Anglo-Saxon kings, is there are numerous stories about them fighting uh, dragons. And they've even uncovered a early middle-aged tomb in a, in a graveyard or churchyard, actually, in Britain, where there is engraved in it in a, a picture of this individual fighting a dragon. And he traces many of these myths about dragon slayers to periods in the last 2,000 years, in the early part of that time, with the thesis that a, if you look at pictures of dragons and you look at pictures of dinosaurs, some dinosaurs, then you're going to see a tremendous similarity. And that these stories about dragons are actually, dragon slayers are actually stories about dinosaurs that continued to live in certain environments and were uh, fought and killed. They threatened villages, they threatened crops, and they were uh, taken out by some hero. It is a fascinating read because it's not a thesis or story that fits the framework that most of us were taught in school. And there have been other studies similar to this that have that have come out. So this is a historical creature. It is a creature that is uh, causing tremendous uh, uh, problems, has tremendous power, and is arrogant. So there is clearly a connection, according to Job 41, 34, between this creature and and Satan. Uh, In fact, the verse that precedes Job 41.34 says, On earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear, indicating the uniqueness of this particular creature in God's creation, and that he is a king over all the children of pride. Now, the outside of Job, Leviathan is mentioned in Psalm 74.13-14. Let's turn over there to Psalm 74. We'll just touch on this a minute before we are going to be forced to end. There, there's just such a tremendous amount of material here. Job 70, uh, Psalm 74 mentions the Le- Leviathan, says, You divided the sea by your strength, talking to God, and dividing Yom, dividing the sea, the chaos, shows God's control over the sea. So if you're a pagan, you're reading this, Yom is is not something to fear if you believe in Yahweh, because Yahweh controls the sea. And so this is uh, using the sea here as a metaphor uh, derived from uh, derived from the mythology, but a metaphor for chaos. And then he second line says, "You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters." So if the sea represents the you know corporate evil of of the demons, then the sea serpents, the tanin, would possibly represent the demons. Now, 
The thing is about this is you can't say, well, here the tanin represent the demons, and over here it's tanin, so it must represent the demons. You have to look at each, at each context in and of itself. And so the breaking, the, the dividing of the sea, the, the control of the sea, is then connected to breaking the heads of the sea serpents in the waters, and then you broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Now, if we look at Psalm 74 and pick up, uh, pick up the context, a uh, part of what is going on here is an encouragement to, uh, to God's people of God's control over these, these forces uh, these forces of evil. And it's a reference back to the fact that God has is in control of these things, and it goes back to even uh, the, the creation. Now, if you look at just that second verse, you broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. In the NET Bible, it has almost the same thing. You crush the heads of Leviathan, and you fed him to people who live along the coast. That's the NET translation. And um, NASB says you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So here my main point is that this is used. It's a historical creature, but used as a picture of the enemy of God that God destroys and kills. Now, when we come back next time, I'll review that just a little bit, and we'll go right into Psalm 104 and then get into, from there we go into Isaiah 27.1, which helps to tie all of this together. And, uh, and then we'll start seeing how this fits into the angelic conflict. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and to study these things and to realize that your word gives us insights into a global or actually cosmic battle that you were engaged in before the creation of described in Genesis chapter 1. A, cre- a, a cosmic battle between you and the forces of evil headed up by Satan and that in this figurative language that we have, it depicts for us your still your absolute sovereignty over the forces of evil and a time in the past when you brought a level of defeat against Leviathan and the Tanin which is a which which fits with the scenario of a pre-Genesis 1 creation of the angels and angelic rebellion and this helps us to understand so much about human history and our own role within that history. So, Father, help us to uh, be able to think these things through in Scripture and connect the dots. Uh, Even though there aren't very many to connect, we can understand the significance of this for our own spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.